banjos are strumming. Do, do banjos strum? I think they do. Anyway, those are our banjos. Welcome to another episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan with co-host John Banks. Hi, John. Tom, what's going on? We get a really special guest tonight. We have uh, a guy who would be the modern-day dean of Antietam historians, Dr. Tom Clemens. So many accomplishments, the founder of Save Historic Antietam Foundation that edited and annotated Ezra Carmen's uh, books on the on the Battle of Antietam. But before we get to Tom, John, I know you have a you had another excursion over the weekend. Yeah, it's amazing. It's to- completely shocking. I went on a Civil War trip, uh, actually two weekends ago, Tom. I went to two hours north of Nashville to Sacramento, Kentucky, population 425, site of Nathan Bedford Forrest's first victory. And there wasn't a whole heck of a lot to see there, but it's still interesting to me. There were there weren't there were just a few casualties at, at Sacramento, and but as I like to say, the 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 loved ones mourned the the casualties and the dead from battles like that, just as they did from Gettysburg or Antietam or Shiloh or the, or the other battlefields. What I found interesting after my visit, Tom, was a friend of mine noted uh, they have an annual reenactment there that where they have been holding I believe they discontinued it just for a little bit they're going to do it again this year but he sent me notes saying uh, when he attended one of the reenactments as a reenactor several years ago the local funeral director picked him up in a hearse to take the reenactors to the battlefield I got kind of a kind of a kick out of that that was pretty funny pretty humorous and you, Tom, have had your uh, Tom McMillan have had your own interesting experience recently, it, it right? Was, it was quite an experience. As John and I both speak occasionally to Civil War roundtables, and uh, I had a, a gig at the the uh, Mid Ohio Valley in Marietta, Ohio, which I scheduled when we were living just in Pittsburgh. Now we're half living in Gettysburg. So it was a four hour and ten minute drive from Gettysburg. But I was excited. It was my Star Spangled Banner book, and despite the fact that it's not directly on the Civil War. A lot of the roundtables have wanted that kind of history too, with Armistead connection and things like that. So I drive out there four hours and 10 minutes. I give my talk, I do my book signing. And it's good. It's overnight, it's supposed to snow five inches in the Maryland and West Virginia mountains. I figured I better go home. So I drove four hours and 10 minutes, gave a talk for an hour and a half and drove four hours and 10 minutes back and slept very well that morning. You're insane. You're insane. We're insane. What we do for it, what we do for the fans. We're insane. Yeah. Well, let's get on to our guests, right, Tom? Absolutely. And it's this is the second consecutive podcast in which we've had a Tom. We had Tom McGrath on the Battle of Shepherdstown last podcast. So if any of us get confused here, it'd probably be me. My name is John, not Tom. But we welcome, uh, again, Tom Clemens, who is president of the Save Historic Antietam Foundation a Keatesville, Maryland resident and frequent diner at Bonnie's at the Redbird in Keatesville, one of our semi-official Tom McMillan breakfast joint of this podcast. Tom Clemens, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, John. Thank you. And as I like to say about the Redbird, brown gravy is a condiment. You can get it on anything, anytime. Brown gravy will be next on my scrambled eggs when I'm there. there you go. Hopefully, there you hopefully go. in the spring. You well, Tom, yeah, <laughs> it's a great place. It so is. Tom, Tom Clemens, so here, here's the deal. You're president of SHAF, Save Historic 
Antietam Foundation. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a member of the board. We'd like to know for our, if you could explain to our listeners, what the heck is Chef? What does it do? What do we need to know about it? Well, John, uh, thanks again for having me. Chef is a nonprofit land preservation organization that has been around since 1985. We incorporated 1986. So we are older than American Battlefield Trust. We are older than just about any other Civil War Battlefield Preservation Organization with the exception of maybe Gettysburg Battlefield Preservation Association. Uh, we are uh, all volunteer. We have no paid staff. And we get by essentially on the generosity of people who, like you and me, are in love with Antietam Battlefield and uh, want to see it preserved, expanded, and interpreted. And so uh, if I can digress a moment, we started in 1985 when, as I say, there were no other battlefield preservation organizations around. So we had no model. We had nothing to copy from. But the county commissioners in Washington County illegally rezoned the Grove Farm, where Abraham Lincoln was photographed standing with George McClellan in October of 1862. And this was done in the summer. Uh, nobody knew about it until somebody told the Hagerstown Civil War Roundtable, who began meeting in September. And myself, Dennis Fry, John Schilt, a uh, bunch of other people were outraged, but we had no idea what to do about it. Uh, but we started getting like-minded people together. We uh, sued the county commissioners, uh, which we learned a lot. It was a learning experience. Uh, we won at a local level. We were overturned at appeal because, and I find this really interesting. If you or I were to rob a bank, there is a statute of limitations, like 10, 15 years. If the county commissioners violate their own zoning laws and illegally rezone something, you know how long you have to catch them at it? 30 days. Man. So they said, yeah, you know, it's illegal, but time's gone. Too bad. So we didn't know what to do, but we decided we had to do something. So we started raising money. We started sending out letters to people like us that said, hey, you know, this is just outrageous. We don't think this farm ought to be cut up into a housing development and have a shopping center on. Uh, you know, this is a historic site. And uh, we got lucky. A uh, couple of things that really worked in our favor, one of which was the uh, savings and loan crisis, late 1980s, early 1990, that the developer who got this through the county commissioners, and that's another story I won't bore you with, but uh, they were playing, you know, hot potato with it, selling it for increasingly higher amounts to different developers. All of a sudden, the financial crisis hit, and this thing was dead weight. And by then, we had made enough connections with Grant DeHart at the Maryland Environmental Trust and some other like-minded folks that uh, we bought it. <laughs> we bought 40 acres that was going to be developed. Uh, along the way, a lawyer in Hagerstown, uh, David Poole, who's still around, or sorry, Bruce Poole, wrong, wrong uh, generation. Uh, Bruce Poole, who was a young lawyer at that time, and sympathetic, and he said, you know, you guys are filling up the newspaper with what you don't like. Nobody cares about what you don't like. He said, you guys need to go do something. 
He said, get a skin on the wall. And so a little house in Sharpsburg on Mechanic Street came up for auction because the uh, uh, local uh, uh, American Legion was going to buy it and tear it down to expand their parking lot. This was a Civil War period log cabin that was covered with board and batten siding. It had a shell in the side of it from the battle. And so we bought it at auction without any idea how the hell we were going to pay for it. Uh, but we kept sending out letters and raising money locally. And we made every mortgage payment. And eventually uh, we sold it to somebody who restored it. And it's still standing today. And the old American Legion post is now a parking lot. Interesting. Interesting. So. Yeah, we, we literally learned just seat of the pants. We had no idea. Uh, and of course, a couple of years later, the uh, Association for Preservation of Civil War Sites got started with Dennis Fry as one of their founders. So we always had a very symbiotic relationship with them. And uh, Dennis uh, had been our first president, but because he was a Park Service employee, that was really sort of a conflict of interest. So they elected me president in 1989 and nobody has wanted it since. <laughs> I know, because I've asked. Um, Tom, but, according to my West Virginia University math, that's a 35-year run, which is, I think, longer than maybe Franco in Spain led, <laughs> held, held office or whatever. I'm not saying that you're a dictator, Tom Clemens. I'm just saying that's a long, that's quite the run. That's pretty impressive. Uh, interestingly enough, my wife holds a very similar opinion. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's just a labor of love for yes. all of us. I mean, it's because we care and, uh, you know, I know a lot of groups, the trust, and the, you know, even some of the other like uh, central Virginia and others, they have paid employees. We just never really wanted to go that route. We've just always been able uh, to get essentially from the, uh, kindness of many people, a very good treasurer, a very good board, and a lot of people who are willing to just devote their time and expertise, like you putting together our newsletter. Yes, uh, indeed. You know, yes, uh, indeed. That's something that I would hate to put a dollar value on because you're very good at it, and you know you donate that to Shaft. But which reminds me, if you want a letter for your taxes, we can do that. <laughs> I think I'm good. Well, uh, what I what I wanted to to speaking of preservation successes tom there, there have been many of them over the years but there's there's a recent one that Schaff has been responsible for that i that i want you to talk about it's a property up on harper's ferry road could you tell our listeners what what happened there and and, and uh, the significance of that property well let, let me start it off by this uh, when battlefields are created by the national government, they do a study, they draw a boundary line, and they say that the Park Service is able to take possession of any property inside that boundary, almost always by willing seller. They do have the power of condemnation, but I look at condemnation like a police officer's weapon. I don't want them to use it unless it's absolutely necessary. So that's the boundary. Now, when people come visit the park, most of the folks who go to a national park assume that, you know, when they're inside the boundary of the park, that's where everything happened. Not the case, as you know, uh, that this is sort of a trade-off of how much is the local government and local community willing to see go into government hands and how much. So what happens is, and 
you two know this very well, that if you take the Antietam driving tour, you'll wind up eventually down at Burnside Bridge where Tom McMillan and I just recently uh, had conversation. And there's a tour stop there. And you come up from Burnside Bridge up the ravine where the Burnside Bridge Road runs. And there's a tour stop at the top of that ravine that covers the fighting that happened in that part of the field. Then you drive nearly half a mile down Branch Avenue with fighting on either side of the road. And then you go up to Harper's Ferry Road, turn back towards town, and the next tour stop is in the National Cemetery. And there's no place to talk about Burnside's attack, about AP Hill's arrival and the fighting. Uh, and essentially the Park Service boundary ends at Harper's Ferry Road. Now, a couple summers ago, a house there on the other side of the road from the National Park boundary, up on a hill. You've been there, John. You know the view. It's just spectacular. You stand there and the entire Burnside AP Hill fight is unfolded in front of you. And you can see the terrain. You can literally see the top of the 16th Connecticut Monument from this property and General Branch's mortuary cannon. And uh, so we bought it. Uh, it was a half acre lot with a house on it. Um, and uh, we made a good offer to the owner and bought it. And shortly after that, next to that property was another half acre lot, which had a uh, house trailer on it, the roof of which had blown off about three years earlier and uh, was laying in the front yard and uh, was housing a family of feral cats and you know that sort of thing. It was real eyesore. And so we made an offer and came to terms with the owner of that. So now we own an acre with a spectacular view of the battlefield, but it's not in the boundary. So the Park Service could not help us uh, with it. Luckily, there is a program called the American Battlefield Protection Program that if any group like ours or the ABT, American Battlefield Trust, buys a property that's not inside the boundary, they will match 50-50 whatever price we pay, whatever expenses we incurred buying the property. So we knew that, you know, laying out, I think it came to a little over $200,000 cash out of our account. Uh, we knew that we would get half of that back. Uh, now, what are we going to do with it? Well, we tore down the trailer and just this past uh, November, we tore down the house. And so now we've got an acre of property sitting there with just grass with a spectacular view of the battlefield. We offered it to the previous superintendent of Antietam and said, you know, we'll give you this acre and this would be a wonderful place for a tour stop. But it is difficult to get boundary expansions for battlefields now. Um, and I will bore you with the details of why that is, but it just is. And uh, so, we kind of went back to our board and said, okay, you know, we got this property. What are we going to do with it? And our board said, let's put in our own tour stop. Let's let people come up and get this view. We'll put in a driveway. We'll put in some interp tablets and a parking lot. People don't have to know that they're no longer in the national park. The whole point is to enhance the visitor's view of the battlefield and to save property that was part of the battle. Now, 
I got to give a shout out to American Battlefield Trust because they worked very cooperatively with us, gave us a nice chunk of change in cash, used their uh, offices to do the paperwork for the ABPP match. Thank God, because it's enormously complicated. But, you know, we would like to do this on our own if we can. And, uh, you know, eventually I would love to see it go to the park. But uh, if not, yeah, we're just going to turn it into our own tour stop. And maybe we'll put up a sign that says preserved by it. But when ABPP got interested, they said, can you prove the historical significance of this property? Well, as you know, John, I've been reading the Carmen letters. There was a letter to Carmen from Captain Richardson of the second company of the Washington Artillery from Louisiana, who described very precisely that his guns were there when the 8th Connecticut charged forward and overran uh, you know, the PD artillery a couple of hundred yards to the north, and that Richardson said he was able to get his guns away by going behind a couple of haystacks on the property we own. Another letter from Colonel Lane of the 28th North Carolina says that when he got to the Harper's Ferry Road, A.P. Hill in person detached him from Branch's brigade and said, go up there and get in the sunken part of that road in front of Richardson's battery and support the guns. So here I had two letters from people who were there during the battle saying this is what they did on property we own. It doesn't get much better than that. That's so awesome. I turned that into ABPP and said, you know, to the American Bachelor Trust, I said, is this good enough? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, that's a that's a big victory for us. But we have worked cooperatively with the trust in 2015, 2015 and 2016. We worked together with them to buy three properties inside the boundary. Uh, we bought the brick house that was on the north end of the battlefield, uh, the North Woods on the Hagerstown Pike, pretty much where the toll gate was for the Sharpsburg-Hagerstown Turnpike. That went up for auction. The trust bought it. We gave them some cash towards it, and we tore it down and restored the property. Now, you've been around there a long time. You remember a house that was in the East Woods, and that changed hands and came into the hands of a young fellow who put in a huge commercial-sized garage which, by the way, he went to the county and said it was a barn for his cattle with a 12-inch thick cement floor. Anyway, and, uh, you know, sort of a karma thing, but uh, after he had trashed a part of the battlefield, he and his wife divorced. He had to sell the property. Wow. And so he came to me and he said, uh, you know, I've got to sell this. And I said, let me give you a Civil War Trust phone number. So, again, they bought it. We put money into it. We tore down the barn and the commercial garage paid for by Shaft and restored the property. State of Maryland came in and planted some trees. And that same year was when we bought the house that sat south of the cornfield up on the hill with the big barn that was falling down. That 44-acre triangular field just south of the cornfield. And this is, to me, the hole in the donut. I mean, this is the most important property in the battlefield that was not in Park Service hands, had never been in Park Service hands, been private hands since the battle. And, uh, you know, the folks that lived in that house were very nice and they let guys relic hunt in there and all that, but it was a big house, big farm in the middle of the battlefield that the Park Service did not own, didn't control. Long story, but basically the Park 
you know, didn't have the money. The trust did. Again, we put in money. Again, we put in a lot of labor. There was a huge line of trees uh, that went from the house all the way down to opposite the Maryland Monument. So you literally could not see the Eastwoods from the Westwoods, which you guys know <laughs> that's a big problem because during the war, that was open. And so we cut down a lot of those trees with volunteer help. We must have been in there, oh, two, three dozen days with chainsaws and stuff, just volunteers. And then we got a demolition company to come in, level the house, level the barn. The Park Service bought it. Now there is a walking path through it. Uh, and it's, you know, the center part of the battle. What's interesting to me is, of course, and this is a lesson I learned over the years, the Park Service doesn't interpret land they don't own. And, you know, I understand why. But look at that tour stop. You get out of the cornfield and you face north. And you talk about everything that's happening in front of you in the cornfield, when in fact the property behind you suffered far more casualties than the cornfield did. You know, for all the talk about the bloody cornfield, there's far more guys killed and wounded in this 44-acre triangle. But because the park didn't own it, they didn't talk about it. The whole doorstop was oriented, so you had your back to it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, don't look behind the curtain. You know, there's nothing there. Well, uh, Tom, Tom McMillan, you've walked that ground many times now, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's a, and I, I've been on uh, a, a little tour with Tom where he told some of these stories because there's a lot of us who are just interested in this preservation, which is phenomenal. And, and and Tom, I know that you know the the material or the the place up by the uh, the final attack. It is frustrating to me as one who volunteers up at the Burnside Bridge that a lot of casual first time one time visitors uh, think the battle ended at the Burnside Bridge, <laughs> and and having the, uh, some interpretation up there will really it's, it is an incredible view will really add I think to the average visitors. Uh, enjoyment and understanding of the battlefield. It, it, it's, it's so important. But you didn't bring up a name that some people have probably recognized. Uh, that would be Ezra Carmen. You did a little work uh, on some of his work. I know up here in Gettysburg, where I live part of the time now, you know, the, the famed battlefield historian is John Batchelder. And he did he did great work on the battle here, but he didn't fight in the battle. He was interested, came down from New England, collected letters from soldiers. It, it did great historic work. The difference for Ezra Carmen, who did the same thing at Antietam, is he did fight in the battle. He was from the 13th New Jersey. I would have to believe that that's one of the reasons so many other soldiers, North and South, responded to him, because they were responding to one of their brethren. But his manuscript was, was available, but it was just, it was not published. And what you've done, as a lot of our listeners certainly know, edited and annotated that work into now three volumes, before Antietam, the Battle of Antietam, and then, and then Shepherdstown. You just talk a little bit about that process, how that got started, and how overwhelming it must have done to it must have been to do that. Sure, Tom. Thank you. And I think you're exactly right. Uh, the property we bought is going to let people understand where the battle ended, you know, because it doesn't end at Burnside Bridge. There's a huge attack, and you can't see it, and you can't talk about it anyplace. You know, I mean, when I was doing tours, we would always pull over on the grass so you could see the 16th Connecticut Monument. And now the law enforcement guys don't want you pulling over on the grass. So anyway, I was very lucky. Uh, way back in 1991, I started working on a doctoral degree at George Mason University and very quickly made acquaintance with Joe Horsch. 
who at that point was working on his trilogy about Lee's strategy or Confederate strategy in general through the Maryland campaign. And uh, Joe was actually from Hagerstown. He grew up in Hagerstown and I was teaching at Hagerstown Community College, lived here since 78. So we kind of bonded. We had very similar views. And uh, I soon became uh, his student and he was my mentor in my doctoral degree. And uh, we would frequently talk about the campaign as he was writing his trilogy. And so we were talking one night about, Joe was frustrated. He said, you know, so many things that we know about Antietam, we only know because Carmen puts it in his manuscript. And of course, Carmen's manuscript is not very heavily footnoted. And as a graduate student trying to impress my mentor, I said, yeah, we need to figure out how Carmen knew what he was talking about. And he stuck his index finger in my nose. He said, I think you just named your dissertation. So basically the first volume of Carmen is my doctoral dissertation. There was a committee and uh, again, some strategy I learned from Joe is, uh, you know, as you know, the Carmen manuscript was lengthy. It's 1800 handwritten pages in a very small and somewhat difficult cursive writing to read. So I knew the committee that was going to review it didn't want to read the whole thing. And so they asked for a progress report. And I said, well, I've got about 500 pages done and it's you know chapters one through nine of 22 or whatever it was. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, I was able to get that done essentially as a doctoral project and I just kept going. Uh, it was fascinating. Carmen was a fascinating guy. Uh, his diary is in the New Jersey Historical Society in uh, Newark. And uh, by his count, he was in 23 battles during the Civil War. He was wounded in the seven days, uh, was standing next to Joe Hooker at Kennesaw Mountain when a shell hit a tree and Carmen lost hearing in one of his ears for the rest of his life. Uh, so he'd seen a lot of battles. But Antietam was always special to him. In his diary, uh, literally during the war, he talks about learning more about Antietam, going into town and talking to the civilians and that sort of thing. It just clearly became an obsession to him. And so when the battlefield board was created by the government, there were you know the first five battlefields, Antietam was one of them in 1890. Uh, Carmen asked to be on the board, didn't get it. He uh, had to wait till 1894 when the Union representative uh, Colonel Starnes got sick and left, but he was paid to be, uh, and this was actually his title, historical expert. And of course, nobody wants to be called that because you know, <laughs> as soon as anybody finds out they know something you don't, well, how can you be an expert if you don't? So, but that was his title. And even before he came on the board, he started soliciting letters from veterans, North and South. They took out ads in some of the Confederate newspapers and in the National Tribune and Confederate veteran asking for people. Uh, Carmen quickly teamed up with a guy from Maine named John Gould, who was likewise captivated with Antietam. Likewise, it went through the whole war. And uh, Gould was soliciting letters because he got into a big argument about who shot Mansfield, where and when, and what Confederate troops did it and all that. And so Gould and Carmen both were collecting letters and sharing them with each other. And to annotate Carmen's manuscript, I had to collect and read all those letters. 
and you know use them to footnote to like you know you read a paragraph in Carmen and as you guys know when you read somebody's writing long enough you kind of recognize their voice and so I would read it and like wait a minute this isn't Carmen's voice he's getting this from something and I'd go dig through all the letters until I could find who told him what sometimes it was books that had been published before 1895 96 when he was working you know so uh, that's how I was able to annotate it. And I just kept going. And uh, there's a story that John Banks, you'll appreciate. Uh, my mentor in collecting and getting all these letters was Ted Alexander, the historian at Antietam. Ted encouraged me. He had a lot of stuff there in the office. I spent a lot of, lot of hours in the uh, historian's office with Ted, just reading letters, copying and that kind of thing. And, uh, oh, I guess... I was still working, so it was like maybe early 2000s. Out of the blue, I get this phone call from a fellow named uh, Joe Piero. He said, you know, I hear you're working on Carmen's manuscript. And I said, yes. And he said, how close are you to publishing? I said, well, not very. He said, well, that's good. I'm going to be putting out my edition next week. <laughs> and oh. I, it just, I felt like somebody had reached into my stomach, grabbed my intestines and twisted them, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it literally made me physically sick. Mm. Uh, I just was heartbroken. And Ted Alexander, bless his heart, saw what Piero was doing and what I was doing. And he took one of my chapters and sent it to uh, Ted Savas. And I got an email from Ted Savas. And he said, keep working. I'll publish what you're doing. I see it's much, much better than what Piero did. And so... That was my savior. And so I'll always be indebted to Ted Alexander for that. You know, Tom McMillan, I uh, I blame Ezra Carmen through Tom Clemens for setting me straight. For years, I called the 40-acre cornfield John Otto's 40-acre cornfield. And I'm in the Redbird one day, and I think I, I saw Tom there, and I, I mentioned John Otto's 40-acre cornfield. He goes, Joseph Sherrick's. 40 acre cornfield. And I was, I was horrified because Tom set me straight, right, straight, right, Tom? Yeah, but I was wrong for years before, you know, I didn't know it until not terribly long ago. So yeah, I mean, it just, it, everybody always said it, nobody questioned it, you know, but when you go looking at the deeds, there it was. Interesting. Well, Carmen is, it's fascinating to read that. He's very detailed. Sometimes it gets a little difficult to read, but it's, it's fascinating nonetheless. But the you have to read the notes too. Reading the notes takes, I, I spend more time on your notes than I spend on Carmen actually, because it, it explains things and puts them in perspective. And the work that I'm thinking of some stuff with Jacob Cox and some things that he was told and, and you were able to synthesize and figure out where guys got their own information and what their own biases were, which is really valuable as a reader. Because if you just read the Carmen letters, you don't know that. So that, I mean, that to me, that was the, you know, I, I think the biggest advantage, the biggest step forward of, of what you did is explaining the context of what these guys were doing. And this is why I like Ted Savas and the books that he does, because he insists that the footnotes be at the bottom of the page, because I hate flipping back and forth at the back of the book to read footnotes. I read footnotes like you do, Tom, just, you know, where did they get this? And it really annoys me to flip back and forth in a book. They ought to be right at the bottom of the page. And that was Ted Ted Savas's motto from the word go was these are going to be there. It really makes a difference, I think. Yeah. 
Tom McMillan. I do think we have to take a little break here and uh, thank our sponsor, Civil War Trails. We, have, we must have some strange mind meld, Tom McMillan, because I was about to mention that. This podcast is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum offering over 1,500 sites across six states, including Tom and Tom, over two dozen stops along the Antietam Campaign Driving Trail. And you can request a free brochure to begin planning your trip at civilwartrails.org. And Tom McMillan, when you see a Civil War Trails marker, what are you supposed to do? Hashtag sign selfie. Sign. Civil War Trails will share that and repost it and get it all over. It'll all go viral. Sign selfie. Those signs are like, they're like the old, those potato chips, Pringles. You can never get you can never. just one. You have to um, I know that John has a few more questions, but I want to get one thing in there. It's fascinating me as I, as I'm spending some more time in Gettysburg. Now you walk the battlefield differently. I had never realized this for all the times I've been here, but at the bottom of Culp's Hill, where the 13th New Jersey fought, there actually is a Carmen Avenue. There's a road named for Ezra Carmen here at Gettysburg. There is nothing that I know of named for him in Antietam. We've got to get something named for him in Antietam where he did all his work. Well, the irony is he wasn't at Gettysburg. <laughs> he was homesick. <laughs> but, and this is a trivia question I didn't invent. A friend of mine did, but I think it's accurate. There is only one regiment that has three markers at Antietam and three markers at Gettysburg. The 13th New Jersey. <laughs> Yeah, there's a 13th New Jersey monument marker over in the East Woods. There's one right next to the Indiana Monument, and there's one behind the Dunker Church. It's the only regiment in the whole battle that has three markers. Well, you know, if you're the historian, <laughs> I guess you can do it your way. You know? I guess you but, can. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, Carbon was in a lot of battles. He was homesick at the time of Gettysburg. He was not around. But for a long time, the Antietam and Gettysburg battlefield boards were essentially co-joined, which is why Gettysburg got all the land preserved and Antietam got avenues through private property. Uh, Antietam was always the, the red-haired stepchild of the uh, preservation because, you know, and in fairness, I will say this, Gettysburg's the county seat of Adams County. They needed to preserve that land because it's, the town was gonna grow. Antietam is out in the boondocks and stayed that way for 70 years after the war. Very little change. So, you know, Carmen was like, well, if we just buy a right-of-way avenue through the middle of the Miller farm, you know, call it Cornfield Avenue, we put up our monuments and plaques and stuff there, everything else can be in private hands and it's okay. And, you know, for about 75 years, he was right. It's only recently. Uh, the superintendent who was there from Oh, golly, he retired in, I think, 2011, and he was there 15 years, so he came in in the 90s, uh, John Howard. 60% of the land that's inside the boundary was acquired during John Howard's administration. And now there's just a couple of inholdings left that are still in private hands. Uh, the boundary is 3,200 acres, and the park owns or controls, I think, almost 3,100 of the 3,200 acres. But... In the 1962 centennial reenactment at Antietam, the Park Service owned 100 acres. That was it. It's yeah. amazing. It is yeah. amazing. It is amazing. Tom, here's what I wanted to ask you. My favorite spot on the battlefield and the reason 
I am so excited that that Harper's Ferry Road property will now, people will now be able to access it is it overlooks my favorite part of Battlefield, the 40 acre cornfield. What happened there to the 16th Connecticut, uh, I've always, uh, I've, we lived in Connecticut for roughly a dozen years and I became fascinated with what happened to them out in the, the 40 oh, yeah. acre cornfield. That's my favorite. You wrote a very nice book about it. It was okay. <laughs> very good. It, it was okay, but thank you very much. So that's my favorite part of the battlefield. You live in Keatesville. You get to go to the battlefield anytime you'd like. So I'm gonna throw a little softball question to you here. What 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 spot in Antietam is your favorite and tell us and tell us why it is. Oh golly. You know, I get asked that all the time and I really have trouble narrowing it down to one spot. Um, you know, there's so many places on that battlefield where 20 steps in one direction will completely change your perspective of everything. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. You know, there's dozens of places where you could be 100 yards away from an enemy force and you can't see them. And, you know, 20, 30 steps and you're at point blank range where you can't miss them. So, you know, it's just very hard for me to narrow it down to one. Um, I always like the East Woods because the connection of Gould and Carmen there. Uh, so I guess the East Woods would be part of it. But... Last few years, I've been really drawn to the stuff west of the bypass, which, as you know, is very important terrain. A lot of it is inside the boundary, but because it's on the other side of the bypass, it's been ignored for decades. And for our listeners who don't know where that's at, that's where you're talking Nicodemus Heights, you're talking the Lucker Cabin, you're talking that area, which is across the way from the 15th Massachusetts Monument, and it's a part of the battlefield where very few people go, right? Absolutely. In fact, that grass strip in front of the 15th Connecticut Monument, Carmen had laid that out as Confederate Avenue, and it was part of the tour. And then when they built the bypass, several superintendents pretty much ignored it. They took down all the interpretive plaques out there. They just pretended that it didn't exist. And again, it was John Howard that came back and said, you know, we need to interpret this. We need to bring people out here, even though it's not easily accessible. You know, this is an important part of the battlefield. And so that's kind of, you know, that West Woods and the Hauser Ridge and all that now is, is again, getting a lot of attention. And I'm, I'm glad. I think you know, John, that those two houses that are on the left-hand side of the bypass as you're going north, Battlefield Trust has bought both of those houses. And there is some preliminary talk about taking one of those compromised sites and turning it into a parking lot and a trailhead where they can do interpretive trails on the back west side of the bypass. That is Tom, Tom McMillan. That's, that's semi breaking news, perhaps. Yeah, it absolutely wow. is. You, you, Cause we talked a little bit about this uh, for listeners from two episodes ago with Jim Buchanan. We did the West Woods with Jim. We talked a little bit about that area across, across the bypass. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see it in the next couple of years, but that's the long term. They want to get a, a hold of Nicodemus Heights, and the owner of that is not quite ready to sell. But I think when he does, you'll have all that land on the west side. You'll have those two properties that you could demolish the house, put in a parking lot. Because, as you guys know, I mean, trying to get across that bypass anytime during the day is taking your life in your hands, you know, if you're trying to walk across there. And Tom Nicodemus Heights, one of the Antietam Institute events I was on fairly recently, 
there was a tour up there. I'd never been up there. What a view you get from, from up there. The, the, the farmer actually was welcomed us and had some artifacts out on the back of a truck. And it, it, it was great. If, if that could come into the possession of, of Shaft or the, or the park, that would be, that would be fantastic because you hear that you hear Nicodemus Heights and you can't really, when you're first starting to study the battle, you can't really figure out where it is. It's off in that direction, but it is so different being up there. Tom McMillan, did you commune with the spirit of the gallant Pelham up there? I did not on that trip. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was on that tour with you, Tom. And, uh, that uh, the owner, I've been up on there oh, a dozen times or more because, you know, I just call the owner and get permission to walk up if I've got somebody that really wants to go. But yeah, he's been, you know, collecting stuff and, and that sort of thing. He's, you know, he's very aware of the historic significance of the property, which is a good thing. And John, if you let me stick in a plug here, one of the things that Shaft does is like Civil War trails, we put up free signs marking hospital sites and general's headquarters, properties that are in private hands. Well, we will go to the property owner and say, we'd like to put this sign up in front of your property. It has private property on it, so people aren't going to come up and try to tour your house. But we want to get that awareness out there that these are historic properties, that if they come up for sale, they need to take that into account that something important happened here. And we just got another one. Uh, we got snowed out Saturday, but February 3rd, the guides are going to go visit the Jacob F. Miller farm, which is on Churchy Road. It's been known locally as the Churchy Farm forever, but it was Burnside's headquarters. It's a hospital site. Dr. Diamond of the 2nd Maryland was operating out of there, and he left a memoir of working there. Has got a fantastic house on it that the front half is an 1840s brick house, not unlike Prize, you know, the Pry House. But the back half of it is late 1700s, and it is just fascinating. The basement, and you've been in a lot of old houses, both of you, I think, but you know, certainly I know John Banks has. This basement underneath this late 1700s house, you can stand up and put your hand over your head and not touch the ceiling. And the steps down to it are each individual step is a limestone cut. It's really fantastic. And the whole floor in the basement is stone. It's terrific property. And the guy who owns it is, uh, you know, he came to Dennis Fry and myself and said, what do I do with this? And we both said, restore it. <laughs> you know, you've got wow. to restore it. Uh, so we're going to go there. It's up on the ridge is where uh, Benjamin's 20-pounder battery was supporting the Ninth Corps. Wow. And so uh, we're going to get a sign for his property that marks it as Burnside's headquarters and a hospital site. And we'll put that out at the end of the driveway. Tommy Millen, we we got to plan another trip. We got to get there. We must. It's it's fantastic. I mean, the you know we went in the 1840s part, and the baseboard and all the step risers are like grain painted to look like marble, perfect condition. Yeah, just it's an incredible place. Tom, is there any evidence it was used as a a hospital? Oh yeah, yeah. Doctor Diamond talks about it in his memoir that the barn was used as a hospital, and the owner tells me that there's some really unique structure in the barn, which I haven't been in yet, but we're going to go over there in early February. So I'm anxious to see the barn. Any physical like evidence, like blood stains or anything like that? Not that I've seen so far, but, you know, I mean, and the guy ran a butcher shop out of the basement of the house. So, you know, blood, <laughs> yes. there's a lot of it around. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you know, you. hard to, hard to discriminate. Well, the other thing I was curious, you mentioned, 
Confederate Avenue, Tom, can eagle-eyed visitors to the battlefield still see remnants of Confederate Avenue? Oh, yeah, yeah. It parallels the bypass on the eastern side, the side closest to the battlefield. It's a mowed grass, you know, area. There's even uh, one of the original battlefield cast iron uh, signs down there that says Confederate Avenue. And, I mean, if you notice when you're riding along the bypass, you can see the interpretive tablets facing each other before you get to the 15th Massachusetts Monument. What's in between those tablets is the roadbed of Confederate Avenue. So it's when I was looking, that's a that's the first thing I it seems so odd at the beginning before I realized that why are some of these uh, tablets turned backwards because that's what I thought why are they backwards on the road and then yeah and then yeah. it comes and then it, when you see it 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 makes total sense that's the way you travel and they have Confederates on one side and the Union on the other yeah yeah and Carmen had that all laid out I mean it's so many things in that battlefield are Carmen's. Uh, idea you know he he basically said let's create a confederate at cornfield avenue so that people can access that part of the fighting because cornfield avenue of course didn't exist during the battle but carmen put that in uh carmen put in branch avenue uh you know so that you could get to the fighting uh he really shaped it and it's interesting because he was only hired and paid for a few years but worked a whole lot more than that. He did an awful lot of that just because he cared. I'm and telling he, you, John and Tom, we need the Carmen Avenue somewhere. We do. <laughs> Tom, Tom, in the in the final uh, couple minutes here, uh, two things. One, if someone wants to join Chef, what do they need to do? And well, we have a website, uh, and you can go to the website, and there is a uh, membership form there. We really need to and are working on getting a little bit more up-to-date website. I, I admit that I am something of a Luddite when it comes to technology. I'm an old guy and it's always hard to teach me new tricks. But uh, we are working on a better website, but you can still go to the one that we have and you can make donations or you can join as a member. We just put out our newsletter, which I hope you got. Not yet. I'm sure it'll, it'll arrive in my mailbox. Okay, mine came a couple of days ago and I got the overruns as well. It really looks fantastic. And, uh, you know, you can see in our newsletter essentially what we've been doing. But as, as I say, you know, we get donations from people and that's what keeps us going. Uh, and, uh, you know, we circulate to our members a printed newsletter once a year because fair number of our members don't give us their email address, so they don't know what we're doing. They don't go to our website. Uh, so we like to print that newspaper, We have our newsletter. We have an annual meeting every year, which I know for people who live, I mean, today, John, I got a call from one of our members who lives south of Tucson, Arizona. And I Just thought got I the newsletter. It looks great, you know? <laughs> so, wow. you know, we know our members can't get to the annual meetings but we like to hold them for those that can. And, uh, you know, it's uh, sort of a loose organization, but it works. <laughs> well, it's a terrific organization and you should be proud of what you and Dennis and, and the leaders of the group uh, from the beginning, John Schilt have done. And, and that kind of segues into the, the, the final question I have before we get to the banjos is, you walk around the battlefield with your with your dog and do you ever get a chance to take a step back and think wow we've really saved shaf has really saved a lot and kind of 
take that all in and mentally maybe pat yourself on the back a little bit too? Well, I'm enormously proud of what Shaf has done. Uh, it's a lot of people. I just get to be the, the spokesperson, but it's a lot of people. And uh, we have a wonderful board. Uh, as you know, uh, Bill is a terrific treasurer and handles the finances and the taxes, and I don't have to worry about it. And uh, Dennis and I have been working cooperatively since we first met in the 1970s. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of very good people. And uh, like I say, I just get to take the credit. This, uh, you probably haven't seen this, John. And for listeners, the, it's, a, it's a silver plate that Tom is holding up here. And it was presented by, at that time, the American Battlefield Trust to Shaft as outstanding contributions to preserving the Antietam battlefield. We got the award in 2018, and it is the Brian C. Pohanka. And as somebody who spent many a night around a campfire with Brian Pohanka, it means the world to me. Absolutely. So, you should treasure that. You should absolutely treasure that. As, as one of my friends says, I would get half of everything I own for one more night around a campfire with Brian. I've heard nothing but tremendous stories about him over the years. I know Bud Hall, who's an ardent preservationist, as, as you are, Tom, uh, was very close uh, to Brian and, and often has spoke to me about uh, what, a, what a great person he was. Um, I don't think I would have been interested in preservation if it hadn't been for Brian. I mean, Brian was really the guiding spirit for a lot of people. That's tremendous. That's tremendous. Well, Tom Clemens, when Tom McMillan and I are back in that area, we're going to have to take you out to the semi-official restaurant of the podcast. Right, Tom McMillan? It's a press room in Jefferstown. That's the, we have, we have lots of semi-official sponsors and that is, that is our dinner place. So we, uh, we take all our well, key guests there. So that's an offer. Yes. As long indeed. as we can work up an appetite, walk in the field first, it's fine with me. Absolutely. And that, we may, we may buy you some, some, uh, cup of coffee and a couple cookies at the sweet shop over there in Shepherdstown too. That's my weakness. <laughs> Absolutely. So Tom McMillan, I, as we wrap up here, did I, there's a sound in the distance. I, I, I think I'm starting to hear them before. Tom Clemens, thank you so much for your thanks for everything you did, first of all, and continue to do. And thank you for your time. John, thank you. Here come the banjos. And that must mean the episode is winding down. <laughs>